Listener Production. Hi, I'm Amy Dale and I'm not a lawyer. But since working at the Law Society, I've met and worked with plenty of them. And I've also met countless people who need help understanding the law and, more importantly, knowing how to find the right lawyer. That's why we've created this podcast, to help make the law accessible for you, for me, for everyone. No jargon, no law speak, I promise. Just me diving into the most common legal problems to help you make the best decisions possible. Welcome to Lawfully Explained. Well, 2023 has really been the year of the resumption of holidays uh, as people take advantage of being able to leave and travel overseas. And you probably think when you go to the airport, you think, have you got your passport? Have you got your travel insurance? Have you got a COVID test? Have you got your visa paperwork? I have to say that was something that did happen to me. I was supposed to travel to South America last year. I turned up in the airport in Santiago. I was all about ready to go out and enjoy my first post-COVID holiday when I was held up at the airport and stopped for not having the correct visa. This kick-started 36 hours of a waking nightmare. I was trapped in the airport. I had my passport taken off me. I had my bags taken off me. I was given something in Spanish and told to sign it. And I ended up coming back quite shaken, safe, but shaken from the experience. And it definitely left me thinking that when things go wrong overseas, you can feel like you're getting into trouble very quickly. So to answer all of the questions about what does happen when things go wrong overseas, I'm joined by Nicola Stewart, who is a partner at Dowson Turco. Nick, thank you so much for coming on Lawfully Explained. Amy, it's my pleasure. So... Returning to my Santiago disaster, what is the most common reason that people get into trouble overseas? I think there are so many, but probably at the top of the list are document issues when you get to airports and you haven't got your documents, traffic infringements or accidents when driving scooters or cars overseas, and of course, drug possession or drug trafficking. We've seen many high-profile cases of Australians being caught up in criminal actions overseas, and the consequences can be very, very severe. I want to start by looking at those sorts of cases, because obviously, while I think what happened to me is very interesting, I think people will be more interested in the more serious stuff, and we'll return to examples like my visa nightmare later. But let's look at cases where someone hasn't committed a crime, but they've witnessed a crime and they're then asked to give evidence in a in a courtroom in that destination about that. What should their first port of call be in a situation like that? Definitely the first person or institution you speak to is the Australian government representative in the country. So Australia will have a network of consulate officers, embassies and high commissions and you should be able to contact a high commissioner or a consular officer to get general assistance. You know, the Australian government will step in to help you, particularly in this situation, if you are in a crisis and will put you in touch with someone who's legally qualified to assist you. You know, there may be a situation where if you are a witness in proceedings, you may not be a compellable witness. So the question will be whether you actually have to give evidence and when you have to give evidence and also whether you should and if that evidence might incriminate you. So there are all consequences arising from that. And so the first point of call is your consular office who will then probably arrange some kind of legal advice for you. 
are you entitled to legal advice in these situations? Like, do it, do authorities have to provide that to you? Yeah, it's a good question. And look, it depends, you know, wherever you're traveling. If you're, you know, traveling in Canada, the Canadian system of law is very similar to Australia. And generally speaking, if you're accused of a criminal conduct or if you are a witness to criminal actions, you may be entitled to legal assistance. Whether you have to pay for that yourself is another question, but your general entitlement to legal advice in countries which share our system of law or our rule of law, you can assume that you will be entitled to some kind of legal assistance. But I I would say to anyone traveling overseas, don't assume anything. Do a lot of research and navigate the territory that you're about to enter, including their rules and the possible crimes that travelers are accused of committing because sometimes that information is actually widely available. When you do get into trouble overseas and you do the very smart first step of asking for a lawyer, who would organize that? Probably depends and it depends on a range of factors. Whether you're speaking the same language, the police may be able to refer you to lawyers, although I would then have to assess whether that referral was to someone who was independent, who could give independent legal advice. But the Australian consulate, embassy or high commission will facilitate referrals to legal representation and they are your first point of call. What should someone do if they are being denied legal assistance by local authorities? As a criminal lawyer here in Australia, my advice to anyone accused of a crime is not to give an interview to police. You should maintain your silence and you have a right to silence in the Australian system of law. That principle generally applies overseas because you don't want to say anything that might incriminate you. And you might think that what you're about to say won't incriminate you, but unless you have an understanding of the laws and procedures there, it's not necessarily safe to say things which you might think will help you get out of the situation um, because you might do more damage and good. So my first advice is speak to your consular officer, reach out to the embassy and get some help, even if that is networking you with a legal or a lawyer in that jurisdiction. But also an interpreter might be helpful if you can't speak the language and you're being asked questions in another language, which you might kind of understand, but you should still make sure you understand everything being put to you. Yeah, this is a really good point and something I want to pick up on because Returning to my Santiago ordeal, I was given a document and it was all in Spanish and told, just sign it, just sign it. I was quite reluctant to sign it. And I was fortunate because this was an airport, not a police station. The people who worked at the airport walked off for a second. And so I just quickly took some photos of it on my phone, had Wi-Fi. I sent it through to Francisco, who's my teammate at the Law Society and one of the team who also works on the show. He can speak Spanish and said, hey, should I sign this? Because I don't know what this says. Like, I don't know, am I saying I've committed a crime? Like, have I done anything wrong? Like, am I liable? And thankfully, I was relieved when he told me that, oh, no, no, it's actually a very nice letter. It's just telling you, like, go back to Sydney, get your tourist visa sorted. And like, you can really then come back, like, whenever you want. So it was a relief, but obviously in that moment, I was getting pressured in the airport just to sign it. And I was like, I don't, I don't know what I'm signing. In a situation like that, what happens if you are asked to sign something in a foreign language? You know, the first thing is, if a document's given to you and it's in another language and you don't understand that language, then you should never sign a document. And you did the right thing. You know, you tapped your 
resources and you thought, oh, who can help me in this situation? You're probably lucky that Frankie was awake at that time and was able to communicate with you contemporaneously with the question. Mm. And because you're in a moment of stress, you've got people asking you questions and you don't understand what's going on. So again, your Australian consular embassy is your go-to point of call in that situation. But an interpreter or a translator is also helpful. And if you're in an airport, there should be one available because the issue will be, what does that document say? And if it is a simple document which says, I'm sorry, you don't meet the requirements to enter the country right now, but if you go back home and get this documentation, you can come mm. back. And if it is to that effect, then that would relieve your stress and anxiety somewhat. Yeah. And it's really a financial decision you have to make rather than a legal one. But what an awful situation. And it's probably good to think about where are you going? What is the language of that destination? And do you have any friends back home who can speak that language? I think that's a really good thing to do. In a situation where you could be at a police station or being asked to give a witness statement or something like that, and you're not provided with an interpreter or translator, what can happen and what should you do? I don't envy anyone in that situation. I think it would be an extremely stressful situation. But when dealing with police, you have to always be mindful of what you might say and how that might impact you. You know, I would be demanding politely for access to a lawyer. And if the police officers are speaking a different language, then an interpreter should then help translate for you so that you can access legal advice. But my general advice is always be very cautious when dealing with authorities or police because unless you understand the laws of that country, what you say may end up incriminating you. And when you ask for access to a lawyer or a translator, does that cost you? It depends again, but you should assume it will. And so it's always important to have rainy day money because those kinds of services are expensive and the onus is on you generally to fund your defence and to fund any assistance you need in those, you know, situations where you're accused of serious crimes. And is there any cost involved with going to the embassy and asking these services or for assistance from the embassy? The rule is that the Australian government will try to assist you for free, but the level of assistance and how much assistance you can get is another question and depends on your circumstances and whether you are in a crisis involving, say, an earthquake or a tsunami as compared to whether you're accused of trafficking marijuana into Indonesia. Just thinking about things like if you're caught up in a natural disaster or a fire or you're witness to something like this or something happens and you get into trouble and you're away from your passport, can the consulate help you or will they help you if when you contact them you don't have your passport? Yes, the Australian government will do whatever it can to assist you to have the documents you need from an Australian government perspective, emergency passport services are probably one of the most used consulate services when it comes to Australians travelling overseas because we can sometimes lose our passports through no fault of our own. And, you know, they are the key identity document you need when you're travelling. So, yes, um, you know, the consulate service is there to assist you with that. There are some countries where there is a culture in the government, in the police force of corruption and someone might end up in a situation where they're in trouble and someone's like, well, if you just pay a little bit of money, this will all go away. As a lawyer, what's your advice in a situation like that? As a lawyer, that situation really troubles me. It's a foreign concept 
to Australia, but it does happen and we've heard the stories. You know, I think it goes back to preparing for your travel. You should be conscious of what you might face in the destination country and you should talk to friends who've been there before and what is generally accepted in terms of, you know, when you are faced with, say, a traffic fine or an allegation that you've jaywalked or something, you know, what are you meant to do in those situations if they do hint or even demand that you pay a sum of money? That being said, I think it's also worth your while to check what is the law there and what are you entitled to do. But I also know that when you're in a situation like that, it can be very stressful and, you know, you might interpret the situation to be one where if you paid 200 US dollars or whatever, you could probably be on your way. But I think that carries inherent risk anyway because what's to say you don't get a notice two weeks later demanding that you pay a sum of money or a notice that you have to appear before a court? If you're rights overseas depend on what country you're in, what is the best way to get information before you fly out about what those rights are? I always rely on Smart Traveller as the go-to for the Australian government's information about overseas destinations. It's simple information. It won't give you a whole lot, but it's a good place to start. And there will be warnings on Smart Traveller's website about certain destinations, whether you should go there, which may also affect whether you have access to a range of consular assistance in that country. For example, if you um, have been warned about a particular destination and then you proceed to go to that destination, Australia's consulate may not be able to assist you to the extent that you think. So there are all kinds of consequences there. I think that's a really interesting point to touch on is when will the Australian government step in in cases? Like, Does that depend on the country? The general rule is that the Australian government will assist in a crisis. And by using the word crisis, they're talking about mass incidences involving multiple Australians. So a tsunami, earthquake, a volcano, civil unrest, political civil disputes, which then turning into street violence. Those are the kinds of instances where you can expect the Australian government will assist you and provide you consulate assistance. But if you have committed a crime, it's a different level. It's a different level of service. And I would probably suggest that what you can expect is that the consulate might help you network or navigate the local legal system to at least get access to legal representation. But you shouldn't expect that the Australian government will step in and fund your representation. What is the process of the Australian embassy or government stepping in to assist you if you've committed a crime? So looking at, obviously, examples like things like Chappelle Corp is a very high-profile example in Australia. What's the process of the government stepping in here? From an international legal perspective, sovereignty of states is key. And so Australia will respect the rights of other states to run the rule of law, run their system of law. But having said that, I think when you do get high-profile cases, the Australian government will step in to assist. In Chappelle's case, I think the concern from the government's perspective was, would Chappelle get a fair trial? Was she being supported because she was denying criminal liability? And so the concern from the Australian government's perspective is, what is the evidence and how will it be tested? But at the same time, we can't interfere and we can't demand that we install one of our own judges to preside over the proceedings. And Indonesia is a civil law system. It doesn't work on the adversarial system of law. So 
there would be diplomatic conversations behind the scenes about is there a possibility of prisoner exchanges? Is there a quid pro quo that can go on? I want to know a little bit more about the rule of law countries. Are you able to just explain what that means and how that should shape someone's initial response if they get into trouble in a a non-rule of law country? When we talk about the rule of law, we talk about the laws being seen and easily accessible, parity in the law, so the law is applied equally. Those are the general principles. And so when we look at the world, you know, the first world generally has rule of law. But then when you get to, say, Russia, China, even Japan, you know, you need to be very careful when it comes to how you conduct yourself generally. But also if you do find yourself in trouble, how you communicate with authorities and what you say can have consequences for you in that system. And what are the limitations of the Australian embassy in being able to help anyone who gets into trouble overseas? Yeah, look, as I understand it, the Australian embassy is limited in terms of what it can do. You know, if you think of, say, Julian Assange, I think it's a really good example of a prominent Australian who's currently the subject of an extradition application by the United States while he's in detention in the UK. The Australian Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade the local embassy has been highly involved in that case. But in some ways, Julian's case is so high level and involves core principles of human rights. The allegations against him are are that he's disclosed state secrets of the US, but he says, well, I'm a journalist. And, you know, why am I being prosecuted for revealing effectively the crimes of the United States? So at a diplomatic level, Australia representations behind the scenes, I would imagine, would be quite robust. You know, there are very high-level conversations going on. But whether the embassy can do anything or whether we as a country can do anything to prevent that extradition is still to be seen because, from what I can tell, it is being aggressively prosecuted. What about countries that don't have an Australian embassy? Are there any that you can think of just off the top of your head? And what does someone do in a situation like that? It's a strange example, but if I think of Chad in Africa, there's no Australian embassy in in Chad, although there is a consulate representation through the French embassy. And so a person in Chad who needed Australian consulate assistance would have to reach out to the Australian consulate in France for assistance. I'm going to ask one more question to make it about me and my story, which is the impact that these sorts of things can have on your chances of traveling again without any problems. So because I had had a stamp put in my passport, which they then realized that I didn't have this tourist visa, they just wrote out in biro like Nulo, like to say it wasn't valid. And then I was freaked that the next time I traveled overseas, that it would sort of come up as some sort of mark that I'd been deported. And then I don't even know if I even was deported because I don't know if that what's deported, what's denied entry. In those situations where you say a lot of the times people run into trouble because of visa paperwork, how does that impact on their ability to travel internationally again? The first thing that comes to mind is we live in the age of surveillance. You know, we are living in a time of data, CCTV footage everywhere, sharing of data between companies, but also between states. But I think in your case, you know, it's not like Chile is going to register on as a red flag on Interpol, you could probably be confident having that letter that you received to know that you could come back. But I think it's safe also to assume that 
every country collects data on the people who are coming in and people who are leaving. And if there is an incident at the airport, you can assume that there will be a record of that incident. Whether that then affects your travel back will depend on what happened in that situation. And, you know, Australians have a generally pretty good reputation around the world. Our passport takes us to many places, but the general rules of being polite, not being arrogant and ensuring that you're respectful of local traditions and customs, I think is a general rule we should all follow when we travel overseas. And we'll probably go some way to helping you if you are in an incident. In places where you've unknowingly committed a crime, so say, you know, examples that are commonly used are things like in Singapore, you can't chew gum in public. And if you get caught for that, how can a lawyer back home help you in a situation like that where you'd say, look, obviously, like I, I have done it, but sort of try to explain that you didn't know that what you were doing was wrong? I think a lawyer back home, the best thing they could do is probably contact a lawyer with experience in that country in relation to that offence, but also in dealing with police. And I think an Australian lawyer could also work with that lawyer to help them make representations to police or to the government about the circumstances of the offending. I'd still say to someone accused of that crime to avoid making statements to police until they've received legal advice, because even if it seems so simple, You know, misdemeanor crimes can have very different consequences if they're committed overseas. I'm not saying chewing gum is a crime here, but, you know, you always want to be careful when you're accused of doing something in breach of a country's laws. I think I know what you're going to say to this. Should you own up straight away? Generally, no. (laughs) Our point of view is really, unless you really understand how the legal system works, Even if you think admitting to the crime and owning up to what you've done is a good thing, and it may indeed be a good thing, you should always check with a lawyer who's experienced in that jurisdiction first because you just don't know. And, you know, there are always things that can be said in interviews that you think might assist you, but which actually may not and may harm you further. Lawyers will always typically give the answers, you know, don't talk, don't make admissions, don't say anything. What happens if you don't talk and you get into trouble for not saying anything? Look, it is always a risk, but it depends again. In our system of law, silence is not necessarily a bad thing. And the right to silence is a core principle in criminal law. You know, if someone is being tried for a crime, the fact that they are not giving evidence in their trial is not to be taken as a negative. You know, a judge or a jury can't take that into account in finding some issue with credibility. That being said, you know, in other countries or other states where there are different systems of law, my view is that you should always get legal advice. And a lawyer may tell you that you should exercise the right to silence or you should participate in an interview, but say the very minimum. That said, I recognise that demanding a lawyer or asking for a lawyer to be present is also going to cause possible issues, you know, particularly if that's seen as a Western thing to do or um, an elitist thing to do. But you can also do it politely. And there are ways to use body language and communication skills to not come across as demanding, but trying to ensure that you understand what's going on. If you commit a crime overseas, that is also something that's recognised as a crime in Australia or in your home country. Can you face legal ramifications back home? Look, sometimes there are lots of Australian laws that have what we call extraterritorial application. 
crimes involving child exploitation or child abuse overseas can be prosecuted back home. Crimes relating to genocide, torture and war crimes can be prosecuted back home. And there are some parts of different states' crimes acts which have extraterritorial applications. So, yes, it's a very real consequence of serious criminal conduct overseas. And further to that, is there any all-encompassing legislation, say like the Geneva Convention, in terms of basic rights in all countries regarding crimes that are committed? Unfortunately, there's not. And there's a few issues with that. And that is that not all countries subscribe to the United Nations and its conventions. And even if they do, the other question is whether they have made laws that are consistent with their obligations under those international conventions. Even if there are basic principles, you know, different state members will still have different systems of law. And so how they operate those systems is not always universal. Do any agreements exist between countries in terms of how they handle tourists committing crimes? So say for a close example would be, you know, do Australia and New Zealand have formal agreements about these things given the close relationship between those countries? Yeah, Australia and New Zealand is a good example in terms of our closeness. And there are many agreements between us in relation to a smooth system of trade and tourism. But when it comes to crimes, you know, I've represented New Zealand nationals in Australia alleged to have committed Australian crimes. And, you know, there is no agreement between the countries in relation to assistance that should be given. But I would imagine that a New Zealander who needed assistance here who was in a crisis, for example, maybe accused of crimes, they could reach out to their embassy or consulate office here and that consulate office may put them in touch with me, for example. Anybody who's got an Instagram account has no doubt been bombarded with photos of people who are currently or have been in Europe recently enjoying the European summer. So I'm very interested to know, say with the European Union, does your behaviour and alleged criminal behaviour in one country in the EU impact how you'll be treated or what could happen to you in another EU country? Yeah, what a great question. From the European Union's perspective, the intention is to have basic standards which do apply no matter where you are in the EU if you're looking at criminal law and the standards that might apply to, you know, the right to silence, the right to have a lawyer, representation, those kinds of things. The EU is a standardised system leaving international travel for a a minute and coming back home and people are getting ready to fly out on a holiday, what are some things that people should be mindful of in terms of their own behaviour before travelling overseas? I'm thinking of things like social media as an example and what they have shared publicly. It's probably something that should be front of mind for anyone travelling overseas. You know, how I conducted myself on social media and is that relevant to where I'm going? In my situation, you know, I'm a human rights lawyer. I'm the vice president of Australian Lawyers for Human Rights and I have signed documents or made public statements in relation to, say, China and China's human rights abuses. Therefore, I think it probably wouldn't be wise for me to travel to China. I don't think I'd be safe over there because those statements are public and I would imagine China might have a record. So it's really good to be mindful of what you've posted to social media and whether the destination you're going to might take issue with that. Well, Nick, I think you have given a wealth of incredible advice about things that anybody can do before they travel overseas and just some important things to check before they fly out. 
Uh, if I ever tell you that I'm going to South America and then you then get a 4am phone call from me, don't say you weren't warned. But Nick, thank you so much for coming in and explaining what happens if you get into trouble overseas. Thanks, Amy, and you can call me anytime. Lawfully Explained is a listener production brought to you in partnership with the Law Society of New South Wales. Hosted by me, Amy Dale. The Law Society's producer is Francisco Silva. Our audio is by Kelly Fulston. The executive producer is Todd Stevens, And the producer is Thomas Thexton. Listener.